How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. No, I'm Jay. And you're in the Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode Ooh. 87. That's correct. And did you just cut me off, sir? Did I? I, I don't know. Did, Maybe wait, did you say your name? Yeah, I said, I'm Jake, and I think you, you spoke a little earlier than you usually do. Oh, okay. I think, um, um, well, you did say you were turning up your mic this week and yeah, retaking back the show. I turned my mic down like a decibel lowered last week, and I regretted it, so I turned the decibel back mm, up. I think it never changed in the first place, and he just wants to up himself a decibel. <laughs> I'm going to slowly, slowly occupy the I'm show. I'm going to slowly get louder and louder each week. <laughs> every time you want to put it up one I go down one and then it's just going to be how's it going guys I'm Zeke <laughs> and I'm Jay yeah uh, no well, it's funny and you, then I'll never overpower you <laughs> well we laugh but like literally your mic is running at minus 12.5 decibels mine's at minus 2.5 mm. so I'm literally 10 decibels louder than you but we That's sound it. quite equal conspiracy conspiracy theory Zeke. Yes. I have a quote for you. Yes. From a 1987 film. Okay. You are free for free right now. Oof. So uh, this is this could be a deciding. This could be. Could be going. I could be going behind. Perhaps I I picked an easy one for you, but I say that, but you tend to not get the easier quotes. Yes. You get like quotes from Blowout. Yes. <laughs> but then yeah, then like the uh, aliens one, you're like, oh no, so. I know. You're a strange man, Zeke. I am a strange man, but it's okay. Here I am, ready to go, and go 4-3 up. That's it. All right, Zeke, are you ready? Yes. Dead or alive, you're coming with me. This is, uh... Is this Midnight Run? No. Oh. I don't think you've seen the film, though, to be fair, this one. I'll give you another shot. I'll do it. I'll do it again. Dead or alive, you're coming with me. It's like a. I shouldn't say. <laughs> You're Terminator. No, <laughs> although when I did, I was like, "Oh, that sounds like Terminator." That sounds pretty. Yeah, that yeah. sounded very Terminator. It's actually RoboCop. Oh, I have not seen RoboCop. No, uh, I didn't think so. Oof, I'm losing. Oh, you're losing now. The funny thing is, I I think at the end of the day, these are films that at least our audience are gonna guess. Yeah, I hope you guys are playing at home with this stuff because yeah. that's part of the fun, I guess. Yeah, it's inclusive. Mm. Let us know if uh, how many you've gotten right so far. Yeah, that's a good one. I like that. Yeah. Right into the show somewhere. Exactly. <laughs> I don't can know Can you where. do comments on Spotify? I don't think you can. No. You could probably comment on our Podbean page, I guess. Yeah. Or our Facebook. Or yeah, on Facebook. Facebook's, yeah. Yeah, Facebook. Clicker or uh, ZKJ. There you go. Instagram as well. Yes, yes, go. that's true. Right, is that the end of the podcast? We've done our plugs. <laughs> <laughs> so how are you, Jake? Uh, I'm good. It's uh, it's been a good week. It has been a uh, it's been a roller coaster, but you've seen we... you've seen a bucket list of films this week. <laughs> I have, I have that. I have. Um, so yeah, I have seen. I'm just looking at it right now. It's a lot. <laughs> One, two, three, four, five. Six. I saw it seven, earlier this morning. Eight, I was like, oh nine, my goodness. Ten. ten films, including the film of the week. Exciting stuff. Um, as per normal, I'm going to start with the forgettable <laughs> and then slowly move into the promising and enjoyable. Um, promising. So, the forgettable. Uh, I did watch uh, The Guilt Trip, which was a Seth Rogen, Barbara Streisand road trip comedy directed by Anne Fletcher, who has also done works. Such as the proposal, 
27 dresses, step up, and dumpling. I've heard actually good things about dumpling. What was the third one you said? Uh, 27 dresses. No, the one after that. Step up. Oh, yeah, step up. So basically just kind of mum comedies, I'd call them. <laughs> um, I like it. It was, eh, it was my, I shrug my shoulders and we move on. Um, the other one that I had heard negative things about going into, thankfully not as bad as Alexander Payne's uh, downsizing, was mm. Welcome to Marwin. Right, that Direct. kind of gives similar vibes, actually. Uh, Robert Zemeckis, um, who Stephen, obviously... Steve Carell? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Directed by Robert Zemeckis. So, yeah, yeah. Um, sort of a film that you kind of like, uh, well, you're sort of confused as to what went wrong. But yeah, I definitely would say it gives off the same sort of blind spotting, uh, not blind spotting, downsizing vibes. Definitely not blind spotting. Definitely not. <laughs> um, so my problems with this film were... Um, it really is just far from, far from Zemeckis's best. Uh, I, so, what's the movie about? Um, so it's about a uh, introverted um, post uh, severe assault victim, Steve okay. Carell, who okay. suffers, uh, yeah, a, at the hands of a, a very vigorous beating that leaves him mentally and psychologically scarred. Um, and he sort of escapes to a world of this sort of 1940s, uh, Belgium town, <clears throat> Marwin, in which, uh, the population of the town is six or seven women that are represented by actual women in real life around the town that he grow- he lives in. Um, okay. and obviously he's the main soldier. Um, and it's sort of escapism, surrealism. Um, it's just, there's something off about it. It's the same, it's sort of even the same problem that I think downsizing does have. Also, downsizing has it far worse. Downsizing has like an interesting premise that just goes off the rails. Like in terms of the plot, it's like, what is happening by the second act? And that's sort of the same problem this has. Not to the same dire extent. Downsizing has like... It's. I made a gesture there, but it's like <laughs> the it's got like gesture. a corkscrew plot. It just g- goes all. Yeah, lot. you pop open the champagne, it goes everywhere. Yeah, and whereas Marwin has a really cool opening. I like the sort of like the this sort of nineteen forties doll uh, aesthetic aesthetic thing. Um, the whole point of him getting a beating, as we discover, is he actually likes to wear ladies' shoes, and apparently he was in a uh, a bar one night and he was apparently quite intoxicated and talked about it that he liked to wear it to a bunch of uh, white supremacist characters which is mm-hmm. why he embodies the sort of 1945 uh, Belgium town because obviously the enemies were the Nazi Germans right. of this time so it sort of parallels between his real life uh, demons and um, the ones in his sort of imaginary world it seems really wacky in a way it is a bit Wacky, even for a Zemeckis film. I, mm. I mean, even his more wackier concepts. Even you take something like Back to the Future, still have a grounded, at least science of the world. You know, like everything in yeah. Back to the Future, scientifically in terms of the time travel, is explained within the film. All three of the films. So mm. when things happen in those, you're you're kind of grounded. Whereas things just sort of happen, and I, I think for Corell. 
this is far from his best. And I think for him, he's come a long way, uh, deviating from obviously the comedic roots that brought him into Hollywood. Um, I mean, I saw some scenes from him in Vice again the other day, and it's oh, like yeah. that's on Netflix now. Yeah, yeah, it is, and you know he's really he's really crook and evil in that, <laughs> but he's like really entertaining. He's one of the best parts of that film. Yeah. Um, so acting wise, I think he really has exerted his chops over the last five or six years, and this has definitely felt like a step back. Felt a little bit more hammy, a little bit more. Uh, I just not clear on where it wanted to go. Right. I think. And, uh, I think the protagonist, though sympathetic, I guess he's more sympathetic, more through what happened to him rather than what he does. Right. So it's it's not like a personality thing. It's like, Oh, I feel bad because this thing happened to him in the past. That's going to be a recurring thing with a couple of the films I have this week between, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> protagonist that I really don't care all that much for. Oh, no. And unfortunately, this one was based on a true story, so this person actually really exists, so it's tough to sort of really poke holes at this the sort of um, narrative thread. I guess there just wasn't... or uh, Really, the whole thing was it was trying to get over his... Aunt. The, uh, the through line is him sort of coming out of his own shell and finally kind of getting himself back out into the world and escaping his... Uh, anxiety medication addiction it's interesting because like so much of what you're saying right now sounds cool on paper hmm. if, it, if the execution is done right if the tone is done right is that not how downsizing sort of sounded on paper yeah but downsizing you never went past the idea of oh people shrunk themselves to help yeah. the even when the, you watch the, the trailer yeah and then right now it feels like you're telling me way more about some of the deeper discussions in this film mm. it's like it's if it's, it's done properly yeah it sounds great but it sounds know, like it was some, just too wacky for its own good and yeah, like, it just didn't stick i think yeah unfortunately no. some really good production arrested out there <laughs> <laughs> so i was getting chased um and i think they were oh and finally on the meh to forgettable uh mary queen of scots so right, so this is one I wanted to catch too. I didn't have time. Another 2018 film, but um, it's on Netflix now. Yeah, and this this is a sort of a period piece centered around uh, Queen Elizabeth and Queen Mary uh, in the uh, 1560s. Um, okay. Yep. It's directed by Josie Rourke, and I'm pretty sure uh. She's done a couple of films here or there, but... Checking out her filmography. I am. Nothing that I can note off the top of my head. I'm looking at a lot of these, and these aren't films that I'm familiar with. This seems to be her first real mainstream film. Ah, okay, I see what you mean. Um, And I'm left very seldom on it, I think. Speaking of actors that we know are capable of pushing the boundaries of their expectations, you know... Um, I think, uh, you know, Saoirse Ronan, we've seen much better out of her, especially. Um, and Margot Robbie, admittedly, too. Um, although I'm not a fan of I, Tonya. She's probably the best part of I, Tonya, so that's good. <laughs> uh, I really want to watch, re-watch I, Tonya. Mm. But um, I would look, now that I've seen Goodfellas, like, I wonder how it compares <laughs> re-watching that movie. Right. In a way, yeah. Yeah, so that one's definitely um, 
the one I enjoy. Uh, like, yeah, so she, like, we, I've seen better from both. Um, and I mm. think this film, I was saying this to you in the car before we started the podcast. The problem with films like this, and this is not just this film, I have problems with films even like Braveheart, which are critically praised as really good films, mm. is I think that this sort of period drama can struggle because it takes place over so many decades um, to really grasp sort of the gravitas because so many big events in their lives occur in such small frames of windows. Mm. Like one of them gets a hu- like gets courted by their husband and then falls out of their, their relationship with their husband within 15 minutes of the film. Um, so there's not enough time to let things breathe and events. No, because obviously they've condensed the timeline. So these, these, uh, monarchs are going through at least 15 to 20 years of their lives. Mm. Um, and frankly, uh, the film is just over two hours. So it's not even hugely long, not hugely long, at least Braveheart's three. Yeah. So, um, and I'm not the biggest fan of three hour films, but, yeah, um, these sort of epics, because this is an epic. Is it? I would say it's framed as an epic. As someone who, yeah, didn't really hear about this, I caught it on, like, I saw a Blu-ray, and I was like, oh, I like these actresses. I want to get mm. and then now it's on Netflix. The only reason I would watch it is to see their performances. Yeah, and their performances are still good. Right. I think they're not, they're just not anywhere near what they could be. I think, um... But they're not given. They're not given much room because there's so much. There's so Plot many. There's so much ensemble cast too. Oh, okay. Yeah, because there's a lot of politics stuff, and I would not be surprised if people get lost in a lot of the judiciary see, and, see, yeah. and nitty gritty of the politics of that time, particularly because it was such a patriarchal society. So to have two female monarchs ruling at the same time, that's a big part of the plot. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also means that a lot of the advisory people take a lot of screen time um, and really do sap a lot of the sort of, uh, you know, feminist framing that it, definitely the marketing gives. I mean, even from the title, you're really pressing that this is about two very powerful women, but mm. they never really feel all that powerful, I think. Um, okay. and especially it's not like the favourite. No, great example hmm. to whip out. Um, you whip really out feel like in the favourite, <laughs> all three of those women are the centre points. Yeah, they're constantly clamouring for power, but collectively, and isn't they that funny that the favourite is yeah. done by a male director and this was done by a female director? Hmm. I think to me that 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 just suggests that it's the power of the story you're trying to tell, story, not the director. Yeah. So, um, and I think that that's what I'm trying to suggest with that statement is not any other agenda. It's solely just, it's the power of the story you're trying to tell. And they had a chance to, and I think that they, they command a certain dominance at points, but they lose that power within maybe the first hour of the film Mm. that real. And for the second half, it's, they're not heroic. Uh, They, neither of them is one of them's framed as sort of, tired and worn out and the other ones comes up groveling back to the other and i think that a lot lot of that's not very uh it doesn't serve them well they become very powerless very quickly and once again not sympathetic because their attitude in the first half of the film is so arrogant 
that it almost feels comeuppance. So, right. So you're you're almost kind of su- not supporting, but rooting for them to fail in a way. You know, you're just sort of just, especially Sir Sharona's character, who is so like quietly really just wants to rule all of England and is mm. prodding Elizabeth. Um, who's played by Margot Robbie. Um, and then eventually it all falls apart for her and then she comes back to her and be like, oh, we're sisters. You should help me out. Pardon me. Take care of me. And then the fact that Elizabeth nearly caves to this just because they're related. I'm just sort of like, oh, well, she's kind of been prodding yeah, family you. Family ties. Yeah. Am I right? It kind of reminds me, not that I have the same complaints, but when I watch Harriet, which is a very recent biopic, it was just such a meh mm. display of like what could have been a really wonderful story. So I, I, I think I get you from that point of view. And yeah. Letterboxd doesn't think too highly of this film either. So Yeah. So you're not alone, I don't think. No. Okay, I'll throw it to you. Yeah. Um. Well, yeah, I didn't watch too much this week. Obviously, I did a lot of homework as did you for the film of the week. So we'll get into that later, I imagine. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only other two films I watched this week was Sequin in a Blue Room. Okay. Which was a uh, very recently released Australian film. I think it's a directorial debut from Samuel Van Grins- uh, Grinsven. That's again. I'm... Did it live up to the Baby Teeth hype? Uh, no, it is not as good as Baby Teeth. I can't mm. say that. Um, it is an after student film though, so it's sort of within the same background. Okay. I think it's a little earlier in the filmmaker's career. Uh, but it's essentially about. Uh, oh, it's not my microphone. It's essentially about a character who I think he's seventeen. Mm-hmm. who goes through this sort of very intense, very focused in terms of the filmmaking journey of trying to find this guy that he met at a basically like an orgy party. Essentially what it is. And keep in mind, it's got an Australian R rating, mm-hmm. which, to be honest, I don't know why it's got an R rating other than just the fact that, hey, this content is about gay people. So, you know, slap that R rating. I don't know if that's what it is, but, you know, it was a very intense... Mm-hmm. sort of I don't want to say psychedelic film uh, when I say it's very focused I mean that it's it's so focused on this idea of he's a 17 year old kid who's exploring his sexuality mm-hmm. to the point where he it's not like he's questioning his sexuality he's like I mean the film even opens up a homosexual film by like as it's sort of tagline so it's a very like this is a film about um, not homophobia but you know homosexuality and it's very dedicated to that to the point where it's like, I didn't know who the main character was. It's like, he, he's a 16 year old nymphomania that's meeting guys that are almost triple his age. And it's interesting taboo subject to explore. And I like the way it's shot and all of that. But I was like, I don't know who this character is. So that kind of distracted me a bit okay. from really liking this film. I, I appreciated it. I was like, okay, this is some bold stuff, and I like this and that, but you know, I, th- I think I think it's getting really celebrated because it's not a your typical Australian film. Mm-hmm. It's not Rams, you know. Yeah, it's not anything. like yeah, yeah Australiana. Film. Yeah, exactly. And I I think it's getting celebrated for that. But it's like we have Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Mm. You know, twenty was it twenty six years ago now? Yeah. So, and I'm not saying like, oh, who who cares? I'm not saying that by no means. But I'm just saying, like, I appreciated it, but I also didn't get that invested into it because I didn't really know who the main character was. Um, even some of the performances, I was like, eh, it's okay. Nothing stood out. Like, when you watch Baby Teeth, which I'm mm. glad you brought up, the performances are incredible. 
across mm. the board in that film. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it just sticks out when you compare it. And that's not because, that. I mean, that's not because everyone in that that film is, is a noteworthy actor or actress. I mean, actually, mm. f- for the most part, most of them hadn't been in anything of note up until that point. Is so, it Baby Teeth or Sequin? Baby Teeth, yeah. Right, yeah. Apart from Mendelssohn, and then the others had sporadic appearances here or there, but... Um, yeah, I mean, you got... Is it S.E.J. Davis, that's the name? She was in yes. um, Babadook and stuff, and then you got Eliza um, Scanlon? Yes. Yeah, who... Yeah. Obviously, Little Women only just came out like half a year ago, so... Mm. And she's probably Very the fresh. most minor part of that uh, that film. I mean, she's the lead character. Well, she's one of the four. She's the one yeah. that gets sick. I would say they put the least minor focus on her. Really? Interesting. Scout, yeah, the one who plays the piano. Yeah, but she's the main character, though. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. <laughs> I know what you mean, but... I was like, she gets a lot to do, though. In the yeah, film. that's fair. Okay. But yeah. No, I know what you mean. But I mean, and even comparatively so to this film, to Sequin in the Blue Room, it's like, I don't think these actors have really been in anything. Again, mm-hmm. it's it's essentially a student feature film. But um, yeah, like I said, I appreciated it, but I couldn't really get too invested in what was happening because it was very, uh, it was hard to, to identify with the, the character. And that, that, again, that's part of its charm. It's like, I don't know who this character is. I myself, I'm a straight white guy, you know. I'm not used. To, I'm even even just in terms of the dating world, it's like I don't go out every night. Like I don't use Tinder and stuff, not very successfully. <laughs> so it's like even from just that perspective, it's not a life that I know much about. But it was cool to see on screen mm-hmm. in this way. And the only other film I watched, so I mentioned last week that friend of the show, I suppose, Damien, uh, lent me a couple movies. I finally watched the second of the ones he lent, called Eight and a Half which is a Fellini film mm. and a 1963. And here's the interesting thing, because uh, this was pitched to me as like, oh, it's a very meta film. It's very, very meta. Uh, and yeah, it's about a film director trying to create a film. And it's essentially all about the chaos that he has to go through between his actors and producers and all the people working with him who were simultaneously like looking up to him and devoted to him. But also talking him down and talking about how he, you know, he's having director's block, which I didn't realize was a thing. I know writer's block's a thing. I didn't realize director's block's mm. like a term, at least. And uh, I thought that stuff was interesting. It reminded me of The Other Side of the Wind in a lot of ways. It just felt like the one that did it first sort of thing. And not yeah. so much a mockumentary, but more like an actual like shot, shot film. film yeah. yeah, exactly. Um but I kind of had the same experience when I watched Scorsese's Silence, which is I appreciated the hell out of it. It's very well made. But... I was pissed. <laughs> I was so bored watching. I was like, oh my God. I just well, didn't do it for me. We can we can say that friend of the show, Damien, is a cinematographer. So he probably mm. appreciated the visual aesthetics over yeah. maybe the, the uh, pacing. Well, I um, think... Because you could argue, like, I haven't seen Silence, but I imagine it's a very pretty film. Yeah, well, Silence, is, first, Silence isn't the one that Damo recommended me. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous film, yeah. though. And it's well made, and there's so much great moments, like storytelling moments, like, that are done visually. Um, and again, like, I, I mean, I'm a Catholic. You know, there's Portuguese, quote-unquote, characters in that film. I have every reason to love Silence. Yeah. And I think it's really well made. It's piss boring. I'm sorry. <laughs> Um, and I don't want to say eight and a half is piss boring. I don't think that's technically accurate. 
but I was just not in super invested into it. I was just appreciating it from a far distance. You know what I mean? But yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's it it's a film that I need to watch as a filmmaker and as someone an appreciator of film. So you know, tick it off the the checklist, so to speak. <laughs> so eight and a half, Fellini, my boy. Okay, well, back over to me, just before we move into the second half of the show. Back to you, Zeke. Um, so, I, speaking of last week on the show, I think I talked about Colin Quinn's latest uh, stand-up special, which was Red State, Blue State. I managed to watch his yes. original one, which was actually directed by Jerry Seinfeld, which played into oh. Comedian, which was one of the documentaries I watched last week. Yep. Um, New York Story. Uh, enjoyed it pretty much just as much. I think he's got a real knack. He's, I like his style. Yeah. Um, I think you would like him, Jake. Um, seems we have very similar tastes in our stand-up comedians. We certainly do, sir. So, um, yeah, it was really cool. We talked more about the sort of New York history and sort of a social commentary from start to finish and how the New York persona was developed. Mm. And I found it very fun. Um, on a, you know, seldom okay uh, note, though, uh, I watched Syriana which is a 2005 uh, film starring Clooney and Damon and actually even... Um, Matt Damon. Yes, sorry, yep. Matt Damon, George Clooney, and uh, Jeffrey Wright, who is the newest Commissioner Gordon in the upcoming Batman film. Oh, here it is. I'm looking for it, sorry. <laughs> um, it's directed by Stephen Gahan, I'm thinking it is, who's done... Well, he did the latest Doolittle movie. Oh, everyone's favorite Doolittle movie. Um, I haven't even heard anything on that. And then uh, Gold... The, the and... picture on... Sorry, I'm looking at Letterbox like banner for this film. And it looks exactly like the menu stare at goats. Of which George Clooney is oh, like, yeah, so yeah. starring. Yeah. It's far darker than that. <laughs> Hopefully it's more interesting than that film too. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it had its, like, its moments. Um, it's very dark though. It's one of those okay. films I finished and I just felt really depressed. Like, oh. I, I mean, if you look oh. at my letterbox logging, the thing that follows up after Syriana was to compensate. <laughs> um, I'm glad, I'm glad. But I'm going to talk about that last because that was easily probably the best film I watched other than oh, the films we're going to talk about a bit later. Mm. Um. So, the other film that was kind of seldom good that I actually do want to talk about a bit, speaking of doom and gloom, goes with Syriana, oh, I know would be uh, The Butterfly Effect. That's the one. Now, I watched this last night. Um, it's just been added to Netflix. Um, and it stars Ashton Kutcher. Ashton um, Kutcher? Uh, this is what, like 2000? 2004. So, this is like oh, wow. okay. just post 70s show. I'd say that's yeah, 70 show. That's a bit more recent than I would have guessed. 2004. Wow. Um, this film, I both like and do not like. I do not like. I get you completely. Yeah. Um, I like aspects of. It. I like the sort of the psychological premise. Mm. I like the 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 changing timelines and stuff, and it's all very clear what he's trying to do in order to mm. to essentially yep. activate the butterfly effect. Um, I like that no one explains what the butterfly effect is in the film. Um, That's a good point. Yeah, because so I've I've watched this movie years and years and years ago, yeah. and I also had that same sort of dual review that you have, where like I've always wanted to see it, even as like I guess a young teen, I guess I would have been, and I was shocked at just like how gothic it is. It's insanely dark. Mm. I think it's only got an M rating too, which to me, I think it should be pushing MA to be honest. Well, I think it's more the tone more than, I guess like there's the sequence with the dog that's pretty messed up, but 
It, I think it's just tonally how yeah how dark it gets. Not just that. It's every. It's not just the dog. It's it's what happens to the characters. Yeah. To characters, and it's got some really cool, like like I like the sort of but the such small decisions in certain parts of the like where he blacks out can lead to such huge ramifications. I like the continuity. I like in earlier parts of his life he's doing stuff that later in his life he affects there's some really cool things like when mm. he goes to try and grab the knife and he gets caught with the knife and he doesn't realize um it's actually mm. him in his later life affecting his younger there's some really tight plot stuff yeah. that i really like what i don't like is that every single outcome Oh, I think yields I such a drastic... Like, one of them gets oh, okay. shortchanged so badly. I don't understand. And I just feel like every time he goes back, something something happens that absolutely just wouldn't happen in that scene, I think. It's interesting because, yeah, first it has that Back to the Future effect of, like, it's such a tight family of characters yeah. where like it's always the same characters but just in different scenarios i think if you're going to do a butterfly effect movie i i now now that i think about it it makes sense that they do as much drastic changes as possible because what's the point of displaying the butterfly effect if it's going to be like oh this person's got fingernails here i guess but a lot of the things that he does in the past when he's trying to change how the butterfly effect uh, like he's trying to change the future by going yeah. back to the past a lot of the mistakes he makes in the past are kind of moronic mistakes by himself or there's things that he couldn't have controlled even if he tried. For example, the the time in which he asks... Oh, I'm trying to remember his friend's character. Oh, like the gothic friend who... The not, the gothic, not the no? gothic friend. Um, there's Lenny. Lenny. Lenny, yeah. Who's the uh, fat kid from the younger childhood when he gives him a corkscrew and tells him to cut the rope where the dog is in the sack and then he elects to just corkscrew the back of the uh, deranged kid i'm sort of like why would that kid do that like right. that kid wouldn't kill another there's kid. some messed up like actions yeah in this film it's been a while since i've seen it, so i don't remember like specifics there's yeah there's uh, some really frustrating ones where you're sort of just like okay you're just trying to create a, the timeline in the future. Or the one where it's like he finally figures out, oh, if he goes to the the mailbox and pulls out the explosive before... Um, like It's like a neighbor or someone walks out. And then he ends up blowing up both his hands when it's like all he had to do is tackle the neighbor. You know? They're kids. <laughs> yeah. But he's not a kid. He's an adult in a kid's brain. Oh, right, right, right. So there is no excuse. That's my thing. Because he goes back and tells the pedophile dad all of that stuff as an adult. In uh, a kid's I body. remember that scene very well, yeah. So he's an adult, so he can make that educated decision. What was the problem? Because I know that scene leads to him. He's dating that girl, and he wakes up in like the their... He's um, in a fraternity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's yeah. living this glamoury what life. What was but, wrong with that time? And yet, I forget. And, oh, well, the brother. Oh, yeah, the brother. Got told like to be disciplined. Psychopath, yeah. And then that made him more no, psycho. Okay. okay, I remember that now. Which I don't really understand that, because if he used psycho and he was told to be disciplined more, that wouldn't make him more psycho. It might make him... Maybe, I don't know. There were a lot of very little... Leaps thing- of logic. Where you're just sort of like, 
maybe before you go rushing back this time, think about what you're about to do before you do it. But no, it ended up being well. The idea is he doesn't really know. That's the thing that that the the butterfly effect, and that's the whole premise is like you step on a butterfly at, in the past and you change like this whole thing. Yeah. That you have, you know? So again, I understand why they sort of exaggerate the events but it's like also like how would he okay. know what to do so to fix a, everything that one where he's in the really positive uh timeline yeah where la, he la, ends la. up doing really well um yeah. he obviously the brother comes the and attacks still him out there for you, mate. the brother the brother <laughs> comes and attacks him and he starts punching him and then ends up killing the brother in front of the, the sister i remember and he's that, like, yes and you sort of that to me he wouldn't why would his character kill like we know, why would his character suddenly be motivated to kill in that scene? Well, I mean, it was in self-defense. That's what second or third. No, 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 no. There's a there's a moment where it goes past being self-defense and it becomes murder. That's why he ends up in prison. I I got to rewatch this film because I you it, do I because... don't remember it being as problematic as you're making it out to be. Oh, I mean, I still sat on a three. Yeah, I think that's that seems to be roughly where everyone's sitting on it because the premise is sort of where it needs to be and it gets you yeah, from 3. A to... 3.3 average okay yeah so that's just uh, that's sort of where I'm sitting um, okay so moving into more positive territory I already talked about the Colin Quinn thing the list goes on I got two more <laughs> um, I watched another documentary The Social Dilemma which just got released on Netflix this yeah, week yeah keen to see this one too a 2020 release uh, I quite liked it scary yeah, scary a little concerning um, sort of just talks about the logic behind Facebook uh, Facebook and a lot of the uh, search engines and how they yeah. operate. Yeah. Do our phones hear us? I think so. There's there was a this, this is real life now. We're not talking about movie. Mm. Well, we were in a lecture. This is years ago now. We were sitting in a lecture, and you had just ordered a vinyl of someone, a Jackson Brown vinyl. My, yeah, it probably was. And then you you basically whispered to me because we were in a lecture, so you whispered like, "Oh, check this out. I got this Jackson Brown vinyl." And then I started getting ads for Jackson Brown vinyls on my Facebook like that day. Yeah. And that's my favorite example of and that. There's never, a million. But... And, you've, and you've never owned no, or I don't, looked I don't, up a Jackson Brown vinyl. Yeah, I don't look that up. I don't really listen to it on Spotify or anything like unless like you sent me a link or something. Yeah. Yeah, it, it was so clearly the audio of you speaking to me in person. Yeah. <laughs> Creepy. It is. It is. And that was actually, yeah, it was creepy, actually. Um, that was quite good. Um, they do this really cool thing where they uh, mix um, the uh, pieces to camera with, obviously, um, some really good interface stuff. But they actually um, thread a narrative film between it. So not a live reenactment. Oh, I think of... I read this somewhere that it's it mixes... Mm. dramatic reincarnations or something but it's not a reenactment really it's so that, yeah they've if made any, it up there. it's more like a narrative thread like okay. a like cuz the thing is when you do reenactments in documentaries i'm not a big fan of them um they usually when, look pretty corny cuz they normally look pretty corny whereas this is literally a storytelling that reflects what the experts are talking about okay. so they're talking literally they just go through a family's sort of day-to-day life and the addiction that different age groups have and what sort of group think that is created by Facebook and has been generated and the subconscious now affects in real life 
um, and then the results of all that. And yeah, they do like a real through line narrative and it works really well and it seamlessly transitions between the two. Okay. Um, I think it flows really well. It's really... Um, when I read that, I was really worried because I don't tend to like that, but... I, I don't... say it works. Like I said, I don't like the... Um, corny reenactment sort of oh it's a crime drama let's reenact the crime being yep. committed sort of stuff um this is not one of those situations okay. this is very much like you actually kind of need sort of a live action reenactment in this situation because of what they're explaining you sort of need to show it in person how it would work in a family dynamic and mm. it might be a little exaggerated maybe that's why i refrained back from giving it a higher score but I think it needs to be in there for this type of film in particular because it's just... If it wasn't there, it would just be a lot of experts or people that worked for Google and, and Twitter and Instagram and Facebook talking about this sort of situation. And I'm not sure it would be as engaging, right? Um, ironically, seeing as the whole <laughs> film's about engagement with technology... Um, so I felt pretty uh, strongly positive about that. Um, and then, honestly, the film of the week that doesn't tie into any of the films talking of about the film of the week. <laughs> I watched Mean Girls for the first time. Mean Girls. And had a lot of fun with it. Don't have too much to say about it. It's a Mark really? Waters uh, film. You uh, know what's funny about that is the guy who directed Chasing the Present I talked about a couple of weeks ago is also named Mark Waters but a completely different person to that Mark Waters. Yeah, was, I'm looking at what Mark Waters... That broke Waters, my brain a little. It kind of breaks my mind that he was the guy who did the Spiderwick Chronicles. Yeah. That sort of breaks my brain. That was so, just one film, yeah? I've, um, he's Yes, it was only one film. I've seen, out of the Mark Waters films, I've seen four of them, including Mean Girls now. Uh, I'm trying to see what episode... Because I only watched Mean Girls... Uh, the 22nd of March this year. So I'm trying to see which episode of the podcast that would be when I talked about it. Unless that lands on a pre-record. I don't know Ooh, what... You... I think it does. Oh, there you go. There you go. So I probably haven't talked about Mean Girls on the show. It's a great film, though. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's... um, I think it, full credit goes to probably the uh, cast. Mm-hmm. It really it really is... The strength is in the particularly the big four that are in it. Yeah. Um, Strong, uh, which uh, strong obviously Lindsay Lohan, Rachel McAdams, uh, Amanda Seyfried, and uh, oh my god, yeah, that's Amanda Seyfried, and uh, she's yeah. in like Ted Two and stuff. Yeah, Mamma Mia, random Les Miserables. <laughs> I picked um, Ted Two. <laughs> yeah, you did. <laughs> that's <laughs> the one I decided to. It's very odd you picked that one. Uh, so uh, uh, she, Lizzie Chaplin too. So there's it's quite a few of them. Obviously, probably the biggest one out of them is McAdams and and. Oh, to be honest, it's just a really fun film. It's sort of like... It nails the balance between, like, the high school drama from, like, a realistic standpoint versus, like, the stylistic fun version that we, as, you know, high school students, like to reinforce. Yeah, and I'd I'd say, you know, it came out in 2004, and it's honestly probably been one of the biggest inspirations for the last 16 years of high school drama comedy films. Mm. I mean, you got to think it's probably one of the biggest cornerstones for that stylistic, realistic homogeny of the two. I mean, yeah. you think of any of the, 
I mean, we've watched plenty of cringy versions of something that would be trying to be remotely even in the same league as Mean Girls. You so. talking like Kissing Booth and stuff kissing like that? Kissing Booth, so F the Prom. <laughs> My God, I could list them, sadly. God. Um, I, can, I can safely say I haven't seen a lot of those films. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, I'd say, yeah, there's a good a good mix of them. But, yeah, um, I really enjoyed it. It made me laugh a lot. It's funny. Yeah. It's very funny. Very funny. Um, and some solid acting. So what can you what can you say? That's all I've got, Jake. That's all you got? That's all you I got You didn't watch any week. more films? No, not this week. <laughs> Catch me next week. Ah, uh, well, fair call. No worries. Do you want to move into Korea? Do you have anything to add for the Korea section? Um, yeah. So uh, last week I talked about how I was helping on set for The Raven. Yes. We did another two days. So we are wrapped at our location. There's actually another half day that I didn't really know about till this past week and they want to do in the studio. Okay. So I'll offer like, hey, because I'm, so what I'm doing, I'm gaffing, assisting, but I'm also shooting behind the scenes video for them. So I got a lot of like photos and video and stuff. I got like five and a half hours of footage. You got a lot of work to do. Yeah. I was like, oh crap. <laughs> I got to go for all this. But um, no, I'm really happy with how the footage came out. So I'm going to go through that and then interview some of the core crew to talk a bit about that. So that's going to be really fun to do. But yeah, we wrapped the hard part of the shoot the four days out in the middle of the forest mm. but um no it was actually really really fun the problem is yeah I, I think i said the same thing last week i don't know how much i can say because i don't know how much is privatized or no, whatever it's... whatever steven talked about on episode 63 is i'm guessing what i'm allowed to talk about in terms of the story at least yes but um otherwise yeah that's done and i'm back in the game baby this is the first set i've been on in a year Congratulations! Since, since um, we welcome back on to the to the Hollywoods. The, ho- <laughs> the Hollywood, what's well, what Hollywood now? Oh yes, yeah, it is. Yeah, there you go. But um, yeah, that's it for now. I'll say, and we'll see where we go from there. Very exciting. Well, Very exciting. It's time to move into our film of the week. But Jake, what are we watching? This week in the show, we're watching Bill and Ted Face the Music. I feel this in the wild stallions. Let's. When your wives suggested couples therapy, do you think that this is what they had in mind? Definitely. I mean, we're a couple of couples, right? The ruler of the future tells best friends, Bill and Ted, they must compose a new song to save life as we know it. Hmm. Music. Yes. It's the language of us all. Ah, very clever. I don't know why I did a Yoda voice. I, I don't know why you did either. We should be doing the excellent. Ex- be excellent to one another. Uh, party on, dudes. Is that <laughs> it? Keep partying on, dudes? Yeah. I think we've been doing the uh, the, the Keanu Reeves, the, arm, the arms all week now. Um, I think I just want to greet. I've decided, Jake, I think I want to go as uh, I want to go as Ted for Halloween. Nice. You can do it. You can pull it off. I could probably pull off 10. You just need yeah. to let your hair come down. Yeah. I need to find a, someone with curly hair. Like curly short hair. Right, to be your my, bill. To be my bill. Can't be me anymore. No. I ruined... Well, you've already got your plans. Oh, well, I... I it Maybe might we be... should dress up for that for the episode. <laughs> Even though no one would see it. <laughs> <laughs> like when we brought E.T. in for E.T. Yeah. No one, no, no one cares. <laughs> well, I think it's fair to say... Um, well, the between the two of us, we never saw the Bill and Ted films up until this past week. So, but we did now. We have now. So, Zeke, amongst all of those films you watch, you also watched an entire trilogy 
of films. And I think this is a common theme for me and Keanu Reeves' films because I watched the three John Wick films back to back to back within a 24-hour span for the first time. And then I did the exact same thing with Bill and Ted. Mm. But not The Matrix. Not The Matrix, no. I still haven't seen the sequels. Mm. Yeah, I got them sitting. I'm looking at them right now and I'm like, nope. You haven't, have you, you haven't seen Not the sequels, no. Interesting. Just Ooh. the original. Wonder. Well, they're doing Matrix 4, so we might have to. Have to might have to, no choice. Um, yeah, so this is the first time we've caught all three films, so we've only got one watch for each of them. Um, mm. Thankfully, plenty of time to digest. Yeah, we watched this Thursday night, and we're recording Monday night. Yeah. So we've had a whole weekend to think about it. The series, and especially the new one, Face the Music, we saw in a, in a, a bloody theatre. We actually saw it in a theatre, Zeke. Yeah, nearly empty too, which was... Yeah, so uh, guys, it's become a normal, sadly, us. a normal, uh, normal thing. Yeah. Well, the reason I mentioned, I think there's a digital release in America. Yeah. So I think a lot of Americans have seen the film on VOD at least, and that's why after we do our review, I can finally watch the Red Letter Media review of this film. Oh, I didn't want them influencing my thoughts. You know what I mean? Okay. You know what I mean? Well, uh speaking, do you want to speak about the first two and then move into the third? Yeah, I think that's the best way to go about it. Okay. I think both of us are on the same page on all three, maybe. Mm-hmm. Maybe both for the most part. Both think the first one's the best. I think the first one's the best, yeah. Yeah. For sure. Um, I mean, the first one is such a great structure. And like I joked about it last week. I was like, I hope these aren't like, dude, where's my car type films. Because hmm. I've said it before, I'll say it again. They're garbage. That's a garbage film. Yes. And I was very pleasantly surprised, like five minutes in, I was like, okay, this is an actual movie. <laughs> Thank mm. God. But um, I just love the idea of it. Because, yeah, you know, we, we went in knowing it was going to be a wacky film. And I'll oh, look at these silly, dumb surfer dude characters. That don't smoke or drink. They don't smoke or drink or surf, but they're, they're just as dumb in a fun, lovable way. Um, I don't, I you know, it's funny. I've never checked any of the behind the scenes or the inspiration behind that, but... Especially even in the third one, they acknowledge that neither of them drink. Um, so when a character, yeah, when one of them is drinking, they're like, "Yeah, we drink a lot now," and it's like, "But you don't drink, right?" Yeah, that's um, a good point. And that's yeah. sort of the acknowledgement that their their caricatures are very much just who they are as people. Mm. Um, and it's such an interesting comedy because it's great you bring up the dude wears my car thing because I too do not like that film at all <laughs> I think it's Garbogio uh, but yeah that film this is, is not excellent I think these three films particularly the first one is it's probably the one of the best stoner comedies out there and when I say stoner mm. comedy I mean like a it's more this, like the lingo they talk. Yeah, they? yeah, yeah. Like talk like stoners, basically. Yeah. That sort of stereotypical kind of. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's well, cool. Well, what I think makes their characters so special, and this rings across all three films, and I would, I'm, I'm gonna love to talk about the third one in particular with this, but their, their characters are so optimistic. Mm-hmm. There is almost never a moment of conflict between yes. them. There's, om- there's an, almost never a moment where they're not in sync with each other. They're essentially the same character, which mm. I love. Yeah. And it, I think that's what makes them so lovable, that they go on these wacky adventures. And, and the stakes, especially in the first film, are quite low. It's like, oh, uh, you know, Ted's going to get sent to boarding school, but they need to pass their history test. Yeah. Yeah, and then Rufus is going to send them through time to collect all of these these characters. And, th- and that first film especially is so fast-paced. It's almost too short, which I almost never say about any mm-hmm. film. <laughs> They're all really... We talked about this. They're all really tight. 
90, 90 and 100. Like, yeah. Is Face the Music 100 minutes? Yes. Yeah, cool. Bloated. <laughs> <laughs> what a bloated mess. Um, 100 minutes? <laughs> and that's, that's, that's impressive, especially in the modern world now it would be very easy to push a comedy that has the wings up to two hours by accident <coughs> so, <coughs> sorry what yes <laughs> um, we talked about it on Staten Island you did um, yeah so I that think film suffers for sure and I think length. the tightness of this and allowing I, I think there's very limited ad lib ad lib in these sort of uh, films mm. because the comedy is just mostly it's just kind of historical uh, a lot of historical jabs. jokes yeah really clever comedy actually um, and I think that's kind of interesting and a lot of time travel comedy too yeah um, so very contextual comedy would be the best way of describing it whereas something in like an Apatow it just feels like he gets comedians to riff on camera sometimes I think that's um, a staple for a lot of lazy comedies these days is yeah. oh look it's Chris Hart and The Rock here's 90 minutes of them riffing mm. It's like, uh, who cares? Yeah. Who so, cares? Yeah. Um, whereas this, they're very much, they've got points to be at and um, they've got a goal. And that's what it comes back to. It's a goal. It may be a, a very uh, silly goal, but mm. that's kind of the, the, the innocence the of, of it. it. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And, you know, it's such a, it's funny that you and I had never seen these films before because we couldn't have picked a better year to watch films that are this lighthearted that you cannot, yes. <laughs> as you said, when the credits rolled on the third one, I'd be a dick not to be smiling at the end of this film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I said it, but I don't want to transition just yet into the third yeah. one, but you're right. All three of these films and again, I'm glad that they sort of kept this tradition. There's a lot that they kept for this third mm. one being, you know, so many years afterwards. Cause the first one is 1989. Yeah. The second one's 1991. Only two years apart. Yeah. Which is shocking. And then, of course, the next one's nearly 30 years on. So it, I was surprised at how much of the charm and the the fun and, and the actual core of the characters they kept yeah. for the third one. In some ways, not maybe not to its best benefit. I'll get to it. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't know. I, I, I think you're right. This whole trilogy does... It's such a nice feel-good yeah, absolutely. Adventure. And that's, you know, that's the title. Excellent Adventure, Bogus Journey. Like, that's what these films are. They're fun journeys. Yeah. And I mean, uh, uh, yeah, obviously going back to the first two, mm. um, it's, yeah, it's it's just really hard not to um, get in, get invested. In. I think the second one obviously does have the diminishing returns maybe of the quick turnaround um, between the years. Maybe. I think... My understanding is the first one was shot years before it actually came out. So I could believe that. Yeah. Yeah, because I think it was like a, I don't know if this is confirmed, but I think it was like a you know Back to the Future dropped in '85. Studios were like, oh crap, crap. Let's look at our scripts. Is there a time travel? Oh, here's Bill and Ted. I think. I could be wrong. I could mm. be completely wrong, but I, I, I don't know. So that could be it. Quick turnaround. I think first off, all three films have different directors. So I think that plays a big part into it. Yeah. Especially because I think they have the same... Obviously, um, Alex Winter and Keanu Reeves as the stars. They have the same writers. I'm trying to find the names here. Chris Matheson and Ed Solomon. Yeah, and I I think that they'd probably be given... Maybe not like we were saying, like comedians get the riffing time. They Mm. probably have a certain amount of creative control, I'd imagine. My, My assumption is that Alex Winter had a lot more in the second one. Okay. Because I think he actually plays multiple characters, especially when they're going to hell and stuff. Mm-hmm. That's my understanding. 
So the assumption is, yeah, that he got a bit more like, oh, well, I want to try this and that and have more fun with the film. So yeah, I think throughout, the four of them became a bigger creative unit as opposed yeah, to yeah, just the course. script as the script. Yeah. But I think that... Well, let me ask you what... So you say the first, the first one's the best. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. I think the first one is the best. What specifically about the second one makes it not as good? That's probably the best way to put it. Just not as good. I think it's the dynamic. I think it's okay. the like. I think the third one presents a fresh dynamic. Um, it's sort of the same. It's actually the weirdest. One of the weirdest things that comes to my head when I watch all three of these films is the Toy Story trilogy, which is really odd. Um, that makes a lot of sense, though. Actually. Um, yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe in the sense that the third one has that sort of letting go and passing of torch, and even just the big gap between the second and third films. third films. Yeah. yeah, and maybe the second one is absolutely not a bad film, and I think I actually watched the second Toy Story film more than I watched the Most first one. Most people like the second one better. I feel like. Um, but from a narrative point of view, it's not as good. I think the first okay. one's way better. I think the first one from has way more to say. Um. I think the second one's still really good. It's, it's like comparing... Yeah. Is this a Toy Story you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, of yeah, course. Yeah, yeah. And I think this is the same sort of problem. I think that there's not enough of a... The stakes... I mean, the stakes are significantly raised, but... Um, yeah, they're dying. Their uh, wife, princess wives are in threat of being killed in yes. the second one. Like, Yeah, the stakes are way more tough in the second one. Yeah. yeah, but... I mean, I just feel like, yeah, it's... It's just because... Yeah, the, the stakes are raised, but I, I think there's just a little bit... Uh, it's more of the same, whereas I kind of... The, the, I think it's a very fresh take in the third one. Okay. Um, and adding the uh, the daughters mm. just gave a whole new fresh experience to the whole thing. Yeah. Which is sort of the same dynamic that Toy Story 3 has with... Um, Barbie and Ken are new characters in that one, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And even just, like, um, Woody's sort of exploration into a new kid's world and um, eventually leading to them letting go. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's, it's a different sort of dynamic, too. Um, yeah. Um, Toy Story 2 is just sort of a road trip film, too, essentially. Yeah, well, there's a bit of a heist film in there, too, I reckon. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, I'll, give you, I'll give you a heist. Yeah, I'll give you a heist yeah, film, yeah. too. Um, <laughs> road trip for most of it, though. Them I've never seen you so animated in there. Uh, yeah, okay, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, fair. I think, yeah, I, I, it's the first parallel that came to my head. Um, it's not a bad one, I'll give you that. Um, and yeah, no, I, I just think the second one just feels a little bit more like the, like the cycle, the, the bit of recycle, and that might be. Even if it's only, even if they were delaying the release of the first one, obviously there's not nearly as much difference in time between one and two as there isn't between two and three. Yeah, exactly. You, you can't um, deny that for sure. <laughs> um, and I mean, there are problems in the third one, which we'll get to. Mm. Um, you pointed them out, and they're very apparent I'm problems. Sorry, I pointed them uh, out. <laughs> very true. Um, but yeah, yeah, I, I just think that. Um, I find the second one still funny. I find them all really funny, but they're funny. I think my, I think the second one's really interesting because yeah, I don't think it's. At the same time, I can see someone liking the second one the most because it is sort of way more wacky than probably either of the other two mm. are. Well, you know, the first one is like okay, they're progressively going back and back in time, collecting figures of time, and the second one is like they have twins sent back to the future to kill them. They're killed. They go to hell. 
they, like they, it's it's really all over the place. And I think structurally it's a little chaotic. Yeah. But the production design in particular and the direction I thought was really weirdly good in the mm-hmm. second. Like some of the camera angles, like there's one where it like pans into the back of a van. I was like, how did they get that shot? And then even when they go into hell, it's like this weird German expressionism in the in the way the hell's designed. Yeah. I was like, there's some really like fantastic stuff in the second movie. Mm-hmm. It's a very uh, expressionistic film for a stoner comedy. <laughs> <Very> <laughs> well, good. I was just surprised, surprised, and I think I think it was, I, yeah, excellent. <laughs> I'll quickly check who directed the second one. Actually, I should have it in my notes here. The difference between the two, I guess I don't. I'll just quit. Uh, it was Peter Hewitt. Who did the second one? Yeah. Okay. I who also he... did Garfield the movie. He did, ah, uh, yeah, Zoom. Which Home Alone is this? Not, not everyone's favourite, I'll tell you that. No, I think he did a... I think he just tried his darn hardest to make a really good film. And I think... Yeah, I, I just think it, the simplicity of the third one just sort of shines more than the second one, I think. But... That, that's why I stand with the first two. There's a couple of, you know, late 80s, early 90s slurs and things that don't quite hold up today. Mm-hmm. There's a certain F-bomb that drops. That yes. They certainly wouldn't, didn't drop in this third one. Uh, there's a weird thing with um, the stepmom, which I thought was... Yeah, yeah. Stacey's yeah. mom? I don't know. That. <laughs> that oh, they call weird. that back in the third one. That's back in the third one, yeah. But um, that was a weird... The, yeah. the third one's got a little <laughs> bit more of the first one in it, but it's still mm. got its own unique element. It's not as uh, experimental, I think, as the second one. No, I think that's that's why I find the second one so fascinating. Yeah, you're right. It is more experimental than either of the other ones, even though I probably... That's that's the thing. Are you ready to transition to face the music? Like, yeah, probably? let's face the music. Let's face it. So This one was directed by Dean Parasolt. Okay. Who also did... Galaxy Quest is his most prominent yeah, film. Yeah, Galaxy Quest. Which I really like, Galaxy there Quest. There's another one he did. Let me quickly Red 2. Um, is that the one I'm thinking of? Because and... I've checked all of these directors. Oh, Fun with Dick and Jane. I have a, I have a soft spot for that film. I haven't seen that film, so... Jim Carrey's got a weirdly short haircut in that film. Interesting. That's all I have to say about it. <laughs> yeah. But obviously Galaxy Quest is his most prominent. Yeah, probably but... more in line with Bill and Ted. Yeah, tonally, I suppose. Funny film. Yeah, there you go. I so face the music is probably my second favorite of the three. Um, I mean, that's pretty good odds if you're trying to recreate. It's not bad when you're waiting thirty years to turn around a a final film. Yeah, with and everyone is this the final film? I mean, I hope they don't just make a fourth one. You know what I mean? Would you want to watch one with the girls? Yeah, if there was like a spin-off of the girls for sure. I mean, yeah. he- here's the thing. I think the girls are the best, or the daughters. Oh, let's call them the daughters. The, the daughters are the best part of the. I would say so too. For sure. Oh, I mean, that. Well, they're ref- it's very refreshing. They're a re- they're they're the exact burst of adrenaline that something like this needed. Because if it was just Bill and Ted, then yeah, it mm. would run fierce. The delegation of time between the two is perfect and that's what makes the film better i think well in terms of like the daughter's ages no 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 no, no. like the amount of screen time oh i see what you mean special screen time in fact it's delegated to half and half well i thought what was clever is that 
the daughters essentially get the exact same journey that Bill and Ted got in the first film. Yeah. They're traveling back in time to find historical figures, in this case, specifically musicians, uh, to help an event that's happening in the present. Beer and Billy. Are oh, their names. names. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but what I love about them as well is like, you know, the characterization, they're just like their fathers. And they're even, not only are they big like music fans, they're big appreciators of music. So it's mm-hmm. not like, they're not critics. No, oh, this music sucks. This music is good. They find every piece of music something to appreciate out of it. And that plays into their conversation with Def. And they're surprised Def is in this film again. Mm-hmm. But I I don't know. It, it just carries the same optimism that their their fathers have yeah. in the other two films. And I'm, and, I'm like, and bewildered great. bewilderedness. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, um, and Bewildering I, and I just, charm. Exactly. And even so, like, I hadn't seen you know, Bill and Ted 1 or 2 when we saw the trailer for this one for Face of Music. Mm. And even right off the bat, even though I remember you saying, that, oh, the, the trailer, it doesn't look like a great film necessarily based on the trailer, but I sort of figured the casting for the daughters was like spot on. Mm-hmm. Even just watching the trailer, I was like, man, that casting is like really great. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think they really bring it. I think for them, I think you're right to say they are the best part in the sense that Obviously, they have quite a... I mean, it's not like... It was big shoes to fill in the sense that you want their performance to be of the same ilk. Yeah. Um, and I figure now is it. I think sure. I think it does. I think they're... they're they nail it, the fact say. that we're willing to be like open to being like, oh, yeah, I'd take a spin-off. That's, imp- that's amazing. The, f- the female spin-off. Um, no, and it great, doesn't feel like it's yeah. shoved down our throat mm. is, is the best part. Um, and yeah, you're right. They have the parallel journey of the first one, while the the um, older Bill and Ted oh, are Bill sort of Ted. having a uh, midlife crisis yeah. version of their adventure, basically. And even physically, they're going to the future. Yeah. While the daughters go to the past, so I kind of like that splitting mm. of that. And then, yeah. and it leads to some incredibly. Um, for I think Bill and Ted have the more comedic side of this of this journey. I think. Out of the two, yeah, in terms they have the of like, more absurdist side. I yeah, guess. well, in terms of like the comedy aspect, you're right. Like them bumping into alternate versions of themselves and getting progressively more unhinged. Yeah, yeah. So, the, so they're fine because the fir- they're just like what alcoholics the first the first time, and then they're breaking into houses, willing to kill houses. people. Yeah, and, and then, then they're, they're jacked prison. up prison, <laughs> which is the thumbnail for this week. Yeah, yeah. For that was fun. I wanted to find one with the daughters, but I was. Getting in good aspect ratio one to one is way harder than it looks sometimes, but hey, you know, yeah, that also works. You're right, they definitely, in terms of the physical comedy aspect, Bill and Ted definitely get the bulk of that, yeah, because, because I think the what the daughter's doing, them, them finding historical musicians or those figures is helpful for the ultimate goal. It ends up being what saves the day at the end, mostly, yeah. We'll get into yeah. that, I suppose. But. Um, I think, uh, in also in terms of sort of predecessors, um, Christian Schall who plays Kelly, who's actually the daughter of... Uh, Rufus? Rufus. Yes. I think she always does it. I've always liked her in anything I've seen her in. She's... What is she in? Because I don't, I don't recognize her. Um, she is in... She was actually... First time I saw her was in um, Fly, Flight of the Concords, that Kiwi show. Oh. Uh, Ironically, she's in Toy Story 3 and 4. She is. She's... um. Oh, which... She's in a lot of movies. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, she's in heaps. I'm trying to think what animal she is in um 
I think she's the doll in three and four. Right, because, yeah, they would have found her in the third one. Yeah, she's one of the kids' dolls. Um, oh, well. The she's new in kids' it. doll. <laughs> Can't even A lot remember. of anime, because she's... Not Andy. Not, no, <laughs> yeah. The, um, oh, you mean Bonnie. Bonnie's kid. Oh, I thought you meant one of the toys. Yeah, that she's makes one perfect, of Bonnie's toys. That makes perfect sense. Yeah, she's one of Bonnie's toys. Um, oh, okay, yep, yep. I gotcha. Uh, yeah, yeah. Even, even Rufus's like cameo in this one because he passed away in real life. Yeah, of course. Um, I think in two thousand eight, I read the cameo. Of, obviously, they used like a little hologram type thing that comes out. But what I found really clever is that the hologram was clearly ripped from the first film. But then, when they added extra dialogue, they actually cut away from the visual, and it sounds like new dialogue. That was just the voice as we cut back. And they've to done a bit Ted of voice. Morgan. Yeah. yeah. I was like, that's really clever. I thought yeah. it was a very clever way to bring him back in. Yeah, it was really cool. So, um, yeah, she did really good in this too. So, uh, it was a very good, strong performances. Um, yeah, do you want to just jump into plot points now? or? Yeah, I guess. So, face the music. Well, well let's start with where they sort of end up. Because we end the second film. That seems like the big moment where they, they do that performance and it's broadcast to every TV mm. around the world, which I thought was very clever. I know this is the second film we're talking about, but I thought that was a very clever way of, oh, that's how they get famous. Yes. But they sort of, at the beginning of this third film, take it away almost immediately. Yeah. And it's like, oh, they're sort of losers. And, and well, their band broke up and they slowly dwindled because right, yeah. they never got to write the song that united the world. Yeah. The they, universe. They never quite figured out what that key component was, the song. You're right. Yeah. Um, Deaf has left the band. We shall yeah. find out why later. Uh, the princess wives are not in the best place. Yeah, marriage is on the rock. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, yeah. I mean, the first thing we see is them at the wedding. They're playing with the music. And it, we sort of put them back in the same place. You know, the loser position that they've yeah. always been. And we're like, oh, they're still kind of the underdogs. They're silly. They don't... They know what their mm. purpose is, but at the same time, they don't know how to achieve it's a very, It's a very good way of setting the comedy tone, that opening scene. Um, mm. It even introduces the daughter characters as literal replications of them as they're the only two... They're the only ones dancing. ...getting and... into the music. Yeah. <laughs> Again, uh, they're appreciators of the music. music. I thought that was so clever. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, I think there's just little things like that that you just... You gotta love and... Um, yeah, yeah. Obviously, it sets them back into that sort of uh, loser position where uh, they're sort of always putting their foot in their mouths, mm-hmm. and now they don't really yeah. have the excuse of being successful. And their dad's sort of just very frustrated. Yeah, you never went to hell, <laughs> which sounds like a line you would hear in, in the the first sequel. Yeah, not necessarily the second, but I get, it, I get, it. like that's where they still are, and, and that I mean that line plays in because the dad ends up becoming a part of this journey yeah where he gets sucked into hell as well at one point but i think this leads into my first here's the thing because you pointed out how i said when the credits rolled i would be a dick to not like this film Mm -hmm. and the reason i said that you're about to be a dick (laughs) yeah well i had i really had a lot of nitpicks about this film and we're about to enter the first one where we go into the marriage counseling thing and we're establishing that bill and ted can't really proclaim their love to their princess wives in, as individuals. It's always we, and that yes. is a really fun scene with a very confused uh, counselor, if you will. But this leads into an arc that the princesses have that is not an arc. Okay, so and- my thing is that I don't think that they actually real. 
I don't think they really undergo an arc. I think, if anything, they're calling to action the arc for Bill and Ted. So their disgruntled well, then... marriage marital status needs to be recognised and then rectified by Bill and Ted. And the whole premise of them going back and forward and such like that, it, at first they go forward in time to discover the song, but then they realise they're actually going forward in time to try and figure out how to rectify and fix their marital problems. Mm. And I think that's their point of their journey, and this is the inciting incident that leads them on that journey where it becomes less about them writing the song and more about them fixing their marriage and letting their kids figure out the song while they fix the marriage. It's a good counter. It's a good, I'm not <laughs> I'm not entirely convinced. Here's the thing. So there's two... Let's let's not even talk about how the, the princess's arcs happen off screen, which they do. But even taking that aside, it's like, oh, well, it's not about them. It's about Bill and Ted. Yeah. I hear you. The call to action is when... Well, I forget her name already. Um, uh, Rufus's daughter. Oh, uh, Kelly. Kelly, yeah. When Kelly literally teleports in front of the garage and says, hey, um, we need you to... We're warning you that at this point you need to do this thing with the song. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the call to action to the the literal threat of, you know, we got to save the world, we got to perform this song, we need to figure out what the song is. That's the literal threat. Mm-hmm. And then you have the the emotional one, which is exactly what you're talking about, that they're, they're fearing that their wives are going to leave them. They're going forward in time and seeing like, what life looks like, you know, potentially without those wives or the, with the princesses. Same thing, princess wives, all that. But the problem is there's never, even though they see their future selves, there's never a moment where the click from becoming a duo to becoming individuals, proclaiming their love as individuals to their wives that shift never happens. We see them identifying the problem and then we see them at the very end of the movie resolve the problem. We never see the shift. And I think that's due to the fact that they, as friends, never bickle, never argue. They're always on the same wavelength. And I'm glad they kept that character trope of, hey, they're friends, they're best friends, they're tight, but they don't argue. And I think that's what makes it not feel like an arc. Okay. I mean, I I think at the end of the day, the reason that they do go forward in time originally is to find the song, but then it becomes more apparent that for their journey is... Because the literal threat, the threat that incites them to go on that journey, sure is the end of the world sort of stuff, but the daughters see when they originally get teleported, um, which eventually leads to them going, we're going to go gather the band... So they are the ones actually taking care of the real threat without even realizing it. Yes, that's true. Whereas Bill and Ted are going on the journey to kind of realize this is their life without, literally their life without their princesses. Mm. Um, I'm, which to me is them becoming very apparent that they need their princesses in their lives and that the song is for their kids. However, I do agree that when they say. I love you, I love instead, you instead of we, we love you. you yeah. There's not a, a scene that bridges the, the We two. don't see that shift. There's not an admittance of them missing their own particular princess because they still, even when they're mm. like, we're without our princesses, there's still a we, even right. when they're admitting they're lost without their princesses. I think they might say something in hell, but it's still we. They never say, I miss my particular princess. Mm. 
Like, Bill doesn't say he misses... I can't remember either of their names off the top of my head. Oh, one's gosh. Elizabeth and one's... Yeah, Elizabeth and... Uh, do, 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 do. Sorry, they're at the end of the cast list. Oh, Joanna? And Joanna. Yeah. So Who, uh, Pet peeve is they get recast every movie. That's a pet peeve. I get between the first and second, I mean, fine, but <laughs> come on. Maybe they just... Maybe they passed away, I don't know. Rufus passed away. Well, it's probably because there's not actually much substance to the princess role, to be honest. Either. Well, they got they got enough screen time in the second film. Yeah, that's fair. The first film, I get because you're right; they're sort of there, and and I want to just throw this out really quickly because some might be like, well, "How could you like this film but not do Where's My Car?" They're rewarded with women at the end. It's like, well, ah, uh, uh, uh. they show that there was a mutual attraction to them long before the reward that Rufus comes back and like here are the here's the reunite reuniting of you and the princesses. Yeah. Just throwing that out there. But it's no, also I, not yeah. a it's not so much a it's not sexualized. Well it's not yeah, like it's... here's here's your reward. A female. Yes. It's like no, here's like a person that you already mutually exclaimed feelings with and they clearly ex- had shared same feelings because they wanted to run away with you. Now Rufus is reuniting this pair. Yeah. It's a chivalry to these two boys, <laughs> in a in a confusing and bewildering. <laughs> way. I just uh, wanted to point that out. Yeah, I agree with you. But um, but like I said, I think the in this third one, the 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 princesses have arcs off screen because you're right. The mission of I love you, not we love you, is should be the moment where they win them back. But it's like they come back before that moment. Like oh, we went through time and realized this is the best version of us. Yeah. So they actually come back. And exclaim that they've had a change of heart, hence they've had their enact or arc, which happened off screen. I'm sorry. I don't know. Look, it's not a big deal. It's a nitpick. I feel like a dick for even pointing it out. Yeah. But I want it. I sh- it's, we, we're doing a podcast. It's not a one sentence review. Let's point it out. Yeah. And another, ni- <laughs> another nitpick. There we go. <laughs> Brace yourself, guys. Brace yourself. So the first two films, or I would say 90% of the first two films, Align with the time traveling sort of theory, this version, this version of time travel is a linear pathway. So in theory, when they go back and say they collect Joan of Arc, that Joan of Arc was actually collected in the past and that Bill and Ted were destined to do that. There's no mm-hmm. version where they changed the past and that didn't happen. You can't change the past and you can't really change the present. It's all a linear thing. And that's why when they say, oh, well, we're going to imagine that the keys to the cell appear and then they do... That means it's predetermined that at some point they're going to go back. So that's the timeline that they establish. Mm-hmm. Hope I'm making sense to anyone. <laughs> yeah. And this third film kind of breaks it because if they go in the future and find themselves without the princesses and they go to jail and all of this bad stuff happens, it's funny, it's comedic, but it also locks them to that pathway. So in theory, the princesses should have never gone back to Bill and Ted in 2020. They never should have gone back at all because that should have been a predetermined timeline. This film introduces alternative realities, which I was... I don't know, it's Bill and Ted. It's like... <laughs> it's not fucking Terminator or... You're going to go home and cry about this. <laughs> <laughs> it's a nitpick, all right? I explained yeah. it. It's just a really detailed nitpick. It's very detailed. Like, I just... Yeah, I just... I wanted to point it out. I was like, oh, okay, they're introducing alternate realities now. Just, okay, just whatever. Look, the Be ending... awesome to one another. Exactly. <laughs> to be fair, the ending of the second one mucks us up too. When when the villain the gun magically appears in his hand, it's like, yeah, that doesn't make sense. Yeah, it's not really, but I think that sort of stuff you got to sort of 
it depends yeah. how much you want to you want to liberally how much you really want to press the envelope on the science i mean at the end of the day they are time traveling through a telephone booth that is true um but the research in 1980 i don't know i'm just gonna <laughs> i think <laughs> it comes it back to up. no for my thing is with time travel yep if the film makes time traveling a science then it needs to the science needs to be somewhat what needs to believable. be represented yeah we you know, a few weeks ago we did tenant yeah where it was an over expulsion of science <laughs> but it took itself seriously right which means that everything in the confines of Tenet we took seriously. Now, we had our problems with Tenet, and the overexpulsion of science was exactly that. Mm. Now, imagine if that sort of stuff was in your Bill and Ted movie. Yeah. No, look, I, I get... Like I said, I feel like a dick for even pointing these out. Now, even if you take something more lighthearted, like Back to the Future, the science of Back to the Future is explained within the confines of Back well, to the Future. Well, the trilogy of Back to the Future is consistent. Yeah. Because they establish in Back to the Future that you can go back in time and change the future. And we see that when Marty has a new family, like a new successful family at the end of the first one. We see that when uh, Biff comes to power in the future. They can create alternate timelines, and that's established from the first one, and that's the same through line for mm-hmm. all three of them. And I'm just pointing out... Yeah, I guess that- it's because there's a dude in there that literally explains the rules of time travel in that film, is what I'm saying. There's yep, not, yep, yep, yep. In any of the Bill and Ted films, they don't really That's explain true. the rules. Which That's means... True. So it feels more essentially, like... Essentially, there are no rules. Yeah. Well, it's the same... It's essentially me complaining about... And I'm usually pretty easy on this stuff with Star Wars, where Star Wars, they try and introduce new Force abilities in each film. And yet and, it's further back in time. Yeah, well, it's like, you know, walking into episode six. Oh, wait, they can do lightning now? That's stupid. Mm. Walking into episode eight. Oh, they can do telephone calls on the force? Like, it's kind of the equivalent of that, where it's like, they're just introducing new information. Yeah. And in this one, it's like, okay, real- alternate realities weren't a thing in Bill and Ted 1 and 2. They are now. Mm-hmm. So, again, it's a nitpick. I my, That part of my brain just wants to discuss it. That's fair. <laughs> Um, but yeah, again, this, I want to just put this out. It didn't affect my grade. I think it's a good film still because again, like there's so many other positives and, and feel good moments in this film. It's like, yeah, it's a lovable film. It was made with good intention and heart. No, that's fair. That's fair. But anyway, we came to the wise, we came to the time traveling. I wanted to get that all out there. My little nitpicks. So what do you want to talk about next, buddy? Uh, I'm thinking of more nitpicks now. No, 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 no. Um... Let's see. Yeah, well, we talked a bit about the daughters. Mm-hmm. Um, so some of the musical icons, because this is sort of a theme in the first one. Is not so much the second one. Depth's in the second one. Yeah. But he's sort of a more fictitious character than say like Joan of Arc. Or, yes, of course. You know, someone like you know, Napoleon or whatever. In this film, we get Jimi Hendrix. We get Louis Armstrong. We get Mozart. Um, actually, interesting fact I read is that the first uh, those first two, so Louis Armstrong and Jimi Hendrix. They actually got. They had to get permission to use their likeness for the film. So of course they cast people, made them look like them, or they just cast yeah, them like anyway. They performed the roles. They needed to get permission for that. However, they weren't allowed to use any of them in the promotional material, which is interesting because we don't see them in the trailer. I think that's fair. Yeah. No, I think it's. it's I think because for, for Hendrix and Armstrong, they are icons. Yep. They are music. They are like. 
your top 20 music icons sort mm. of people. So the fact they even got permission to ha- use them in the film, that's still pretty cool. It's cool, yeah. Um, and like, again, like the marketing, it's like, who cares? Plus, it's the movie. It's the almost like matters. a, it's almost like an awesome thing that they're not in the trailer because it's such a, it's a surprise. It's a fun surprise to get in the film. Yeah, like the bit where they, where, where you see it. Hendrix for the first time, you're like, oh wow, they're gonna have Jimi Hendrix in this. There film. he is, my boy. <laughs> so, but yeah, and like, like I said, it's just it's so nice that the daughters get that arc, and I guess we talked a lot about arcs in this mm-hmm. film, and a lot of them do in across at the end. So I think probably fair play to talk about that. And you you talked a bit about off off the show. You talked a bit about how you loved that it wasn't too hammy with the you know female power representation thing. No, because it's non-existent in yeah. that sense. It's like it's it's ghostly. <laughs> in terms ghostly. Of it's, yeah, it's. It, no, I know what you mean. Yeah, it's well, totally it, there. Mm. Like it comes back to here's here's my thing, right? Because. Obviously, I think a film like this, what it's trying to do is it is trying to potentially gauge if there is a spin-off audience right. for this. And I do think this film can get a spin-off. The scene is there. The the passing of the baton yeah. is absolutely in this film. Right, Literally, the USB crack. Yeah. Yeah. That, so. I think it's there. I think and, you're right, yeah. And to me, that is uh, the... Okay, do you guys want this? And... This and I think you and I walking away with this going, yeah, it wasn't something like the Ghostbusters reboot, where it was this uh, uh, dude dude sitting in a room going, what's going to make the most money? Let's appeal to right. all of the the mind that like they weren't thinking with their wallets, they were just wanting to tell a story and mm. pass tell the story of passing a torch, and I think that by doing it naturalistically, you're subtly getting way more stuff across. And I think it comes back to, um, another thing that I talked about with you after the film is Mm. we don't acknowledge their sexuality at all. No, no, we don't. And even like you pointed out their outfits as well are quite neutral, groovy outfits, but yeah, they're neutral. And even like Samantha weaving has like this sort of, huge overall things and the shirt's like really and, and a hawaiian shirt underneath which i yeah, never thought yeah, those two yeah. things would go together but it was pretty funny um, even um bridget is it, let's see uh, bridget lundy Payne, p-a-i-n-e has like this sort of it's like a skin tight sort of thing but it's reminds like, me of like a um, groovy. swimsuit like a swim a little su- bit yeah swimsuity a rashy <laughs> rash, yeah, I, 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 rock I don't know the if rashies. that's a, just an Australian word. It but... might be. I rocked the rashies as yeah. a kid. I still do because I'm yeah. still very fat. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, no, I, th- I, I, I think for me that that's a big part of it. Like, it, it, it always comes back to like you're saying. They never look at any of these. They don't look at Jimi Hendrix and say, "Oh, he's really hot." They are just fully embraced in his it's, music. Yeah, it's the music. It's the art of yeah. it. Um, no, that's. Yeah, exactly. And it's like that's the slight difference where it's like, although I don't think Bill and Ted were like over the overtly like they weren't sexual perverted or anything like that. There was jokes about the stepmom and oh, they liked the princesses. They found them attractive. There was still a a sexual alignment. Yeah. Whereas that was just a non-event, and nor was it the other way where it was in your face of how they weren't sexually aligned either. It was just wasn't important to the story so they didn't bother putting it in there's even a line in the second bill and ted where oh yeah so they propose 
to the princesses in the yeah. start of the second one. And I think they're walking back. They've got like an apartment that they both live in. They're walking back and like, oh, do you think we'll get to sleep in the same bed as them once we're married? And then I, f- I think that was like Bill and then Ted says something like, oh, you know, hopefully, but you know, that's okay if, if they're not ready. It's something like that. I was like, that's fascinating. Yeah. A 1991 film. With it's these... just Keanu Reeves, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just, a, just a good young man. I will also say about him, I'm glad that I didn't see John Wick watching this film. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Actually. And I, I was talking to someone this weekend about it because I was talking to a lot of people who are excited for the film they haven't had time to watch it yet. But they were very worried that, oh, you know, it's going to be Keanu Reeves. You know, Keanu Reeves is big now. And it's just going to be John Wick without a beard. And I didn't get that sense at all. It's like, oh, no, this feels no, like a No, he went natural... straight back to being Ted. Yeah, it felt like a natural continuation from the last two films. And it's weird because it's like you look at... You know, we talk, I think we talked about it in our Matrix episode. And it's like, with him, mm. it's like... For someone who doesn't feel like he has a really big range, he has done quite a range of characters. <laughs> well, I think that's why he's so... Perplexing. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, just just beloved. Not only because, like, he's such a nice person, he has this, like, extensive background, but, yeah, the range of films he does, where he does the stoner comedy, and then he does, you know, the, the groundbreaking sci-fi film, and then he does, like, the go-to action film mm. of the last decade. I think just... He doesn't have a range of acting or performances, but he yeah, fits he's... in these little narrow boxes for each of these genres and just plays them the way that he does. He's yeah, not yeah. trying to be this like over-the-top actor. He's not Bruce Willis. He's no. not trying to be Bruce Willis. And I think that's what makes him special in that way. Yeah. I think, yeah, he's... I mean, uh, yeah, he's just really ga- engaging and his the way he plays off with Alex Winters yeah. is... It's just incredible. <laughs> you you can't you can't buy that chemistry. And I love that Alex Winter still has the energy for it. It feels like he's waited his whole life to do this third film. Yeah, oh you know yeah, I mean? for sure. Because he hasn't, you know, sadly he hasn't had the career that Keanu Reeves went on to have in the nineties and and you know so forth. So it was good to see that it it wasn't like this. Hey, I'm back in the limelight performance. It just felt really naturalistic, and the fact that we've watched all three of these films you know, within a couple of days of each other. Mm. And we can say, yeah, it didn't feel like a jarring jump. This felt like a natural continuation. It didn't even feel like a lot of, you know, stuff in your face throwbacks. It didn't feel like there was too many moments of, hey, remember this? Remember the phone booth? There were a couple, but it felt natural. It felt supernatural. So, again, I have a lot that I like about this film, despite the nitpicks. No, no, I... Can I I do one more nitpick? Sure. (laughs) Uh, we actually talked about this off the show, and mm-hmm. you got a defense for this, so you can throw it back at me if you want. But, Probably will. Yeah. <laughs> so a bunch of characters get killed, but we haven't even talked about the robot character yet, who's hunting them down. Hunting them down. And actually, then... you know what? I don't even like that that's even... Why did they send a robot to kill Ben Dead? I don't get it. Oh, because they believe it. it's the... Because they, they haven't come up with the song, they actually believe that they might be the catalyst for... Uh, okay. Uh, saving the world if they die rather than because okay, it's become a theory enough. there's a whole scene about i it. thought it was yeah there is i'm sorry I just, I, plus I, when you're on defcon you're at you're at the end of the world yeah you the desperate ideas start to yeah yeah i i to be fair I, yeah I, I there was definitely a scene about i do remember it I just in my head i was like oh what do they think killing them is going to solve anything but that makes sense that oh they might, might actually be the antichrist of the situation yeah, i get exactly, it i do get yes. it but he goes on to kill, uh, you know, all of 
the musical icons and the daughters in 2020. But then, and again, this isn't this is almost reverse chronological. But in terms of the timeline, he then goes to 2024 and kills Ted's dad, and then he goes to I think it's like 2063. Dennis, yeah, he's got the big Dennis something McCoy. Yeah, <laughs> he's got Dennis the big... Cabe McCoy, Cabe Caleb McCoy. Caleb. Caleb McCoy. <laughs> that was like dumb fun yeah. when he's intro- he's talking to everybody in hell. You like when it's like even Bill and Ted are starting to get a little annoyed with him. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, okay, okay, shut up now. Yeah, <laughs> but even like. Even, like, they're panicking, trying to find their daughters, and they're, they're still, like, he's like, can I come with you? Even though yeah. that he was the guy who killed them. Yeah. <laughs> come on. <laughs> uh, the, I think it was kind of clever, though, because they do show that they basically kill themselves, though, in that scenario. Yeah. They do run over and, like, no, no, kill us, kill us. So, I thought that was clever. But, his mean, they were all killed in different timelines, but then they end up all together in hell, and there's still a ticking clock to when they have to perform the song. There's still a ticking clock. I'm just saying, guys... What, what did they die in the future but then they went into 2020 hell what's going on here it's fine the movie wouldn't yeah. work without it it's fine I think my, my counter was yeah. that when you go the logic well from a the, mythological the spiritual world is different a like spiritual, a timeline well they're different planes of existence yeah I get what you're saying but there's a ticking timeline that's my only defence oh yeah, no we've got 20 minutes till we have to but they still get teleported back to that part in time. Is that teleported through time? Or is it yeah, yeah, they go back to that okay. plane of existence. Right. I'm still counting. If they go it. forward in time, they're allowed <laughs> to go back in time too. I'll give you the, the robot that makes perfect sense. I'm mm. still holding on to the, this one. Okay. The hell timeline. <laughs> okay, Boomer. <laughs> Fair enough. I'll give you that one. Um, do you have anything else you'd like to add? Um, not really much. I think the only thing I want to comment on... and. I guess this can line in the nitpicks. Just something I want to talk about is probably like the camera work and just the the cleanness of the film because it is stylistically, or not stylistically, but visually different from the first two. I think the first two, and especially the second one, is quite dirty in a lot of ways. And yeah, they're shot on film. This would have been shot on digital, I imagine. But even the future has this sort of Apple-esque slick look to it. The camera work Yeah, it's work very digital. A, yeah. Yeah. Um... I'm not the biggest crazy. biggest fan of that sort of style, but mm. I can't really blame that on that. That could be a mixture of budget restriction and just sort of because um, I'm not sure what the budget was for this film. Probably, It'd probably be way higher than what you're well, thinking. Not, maybe not necessarily. Maybe twenty five, like, twenty five million. Okay, that so, would have been way more than the first two, I imagine. Yeah, but just for inflation too, so mm. this is probably sitting around... Eh, it'd be interesting to see what the other two were. The first one was $10 million USD. Okay, that's late, 89. Late 80s, so yeah. just for inflation, it's probably about 15 now. Yes. 15 to 20. So I guess it's not a huge bump. But then again, like things are just naturally cheaper these days, I think, in terms of like visual effects. Yeah, and I don't think cast would have been a very expensive investment. Keanu um, would have done this cheap, I imagine. He probably would have done it for no- they probably would have done it for nothing, <laughs> to yeah. be honest. I would not have. It wouldn't surprise me. I mean, they probably he probably now with the John Wick films makes. It, I mean, he's probably made enough doing whatever he wants. I think films really. like Speed and The Matrix would have like set him for life. Probably. Yeah. Yeah, so I I think for him if he just likes doing something he'll do it. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm a little I'm not a big fan of it. I think it kind of looks a little cheap. 
Um, yeah, in a way that the first two, you could argue, look cheap, and there's some effects that don't hold up, sure, but there was a charm to it that this film is almost too clean to call charm. You know I, what I mean? You're bang on with the Apple Netflix-ish sort of oh, like yeah, yeah. crispy digital. Yeah, it's not uh, what it looks like when the future was depicted in the first two films. No. It was a bit more like crazy 90s outfits. Look what they're wearing in the future. It's the Back to the Future thing. Yeah. And if they did Back to the Future today, it would be like super clean. The future would be like... I mean, flying cars in Back to the Future, but it would be like boring designs, you know? Yeah. clean designs. So. I think it's pretty minimal. Like those 3D sort of sets, I'm not the mm. biggest fan of. Um, I think Hell looks pretty good in this, but... Um, yeah. But even future- so, it's more like the, tradi- tradi- the traditional like Christian Catholic Hell... While the hell in Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey was way more expressive, and there was like weird metal tunnels that would run through, and it mm. just felt different, and it felt a bit more traditional. That could be one. a directorial thing. I think it is too. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, no worries. Well, uh, yeah. let's move into the highlight scenes. I think Bill and Ted, boy. Um, I'm gonna probably say my highlight scene. Oh, well, I bet we have the same one. But you go. Actually, no. I'm probably gonna say. The first interaction between Bill and Ted and future Bill and Ted, which is the, the very first one, two year, yeah. the two year yep. on one, because it's such a petty squabble between <laughs> <laughs> Bill and Ted. I, I was tempted between the 2022 and the 2025 version, right? Um, like when they when they're pretending they're British. to be the British accents, you're like, "Those are bad British uh, accents." They're really bad. As particularly Keanu Reeves' film is yeah. really bad. Well, it makes sense because they're they are as characters faking the accents. Yeah, but too, I think so. that's Keanu Reeves. He can't do a British accent. <laughs> um, I thought it was cute. It was fun. <laughs> that's that's the definition. <laughs> See, I think that's why most people want to watch these films is for those scenes. Yeah. So that's why I have no problem with all oh, the time travel. They changed it. Yeah. So I it's I me think being a little bitch. <laughs> yeah. yeah, for for that first interaction where they're just like they think that they oh it'll be over in two years and they they're yeah. performing in front of no one and they see each other and they're yeah, running away. Right, they're and Ted and Ted Ted's picking a fight with other Ted and they're like they're always like why are you so mean to each other? Yeah, like, yeah. well Ted's a dick. <laughs> yeah, comes as a dick. Yeah, that's the only time they have a conflict is with their future alternate selves. Selves rather than... Than their present selves. Same wavelength, different time, but I get that. My... See, that's me. I thought we were going to have the same um, highlight scene until I was like, nah, you're going to pick one of those scenes because those are like the fun things. I mean, I want to give a shout out even to when they meet their like bedridden selves at the old age where it's like, oh, they're so wise now. Thanks, wise Bill and Ted sort of (laughs) thing. Um, and I want to point out as well, there's even an after credit scene, which we missed, but it's on YouTube. So no, no yeah. fuss if you missed it, where they get up and start playing for yeah. like old time's sake. And that's quite fun. My highlight scene has to be the, the performance at the end when they actually play the song, Face the Music. Yeah. It's like, you're it's right, it puts a smile on you. It's a good song. And Everyone then even the roll. cuts into the credits where they've got just found footage of just people dancing and having a good time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's sort of the, at the I mean, in summary, this film is... Absolutely the film that needed to come out in 2020. For sure, yeah. Um, and it's sort of a film that people just need to watch. I think even if you haven't watched the first two films, you probably could just quickly... 
honestly, they're short, the, short films. They're short films, but I watched them if you night. went into this blind, you probably wouldn't have too much of an issue because of the expository opening. Yeah, they they do a good little previously on section, which was really so. Well done. There's probably enough in there to just go into this one if you just want to watch this one. But honestly, you'd be missing out on the first two. So. Well, yeah, that's a good point, because the first two were just as good. I mean, I'm still under the impression that this third one's probably the least good one. But again, that's how I would phrase it, the least good one. It's not like it's the bad one. It does what it needs to do, mm. so you're right. I think definitely check the other two out, because it's worth it. It's an excellent adventure, as they say. Um, yeah, well, I love just that performance at the end. Just Jake, I hope awesome. we continue to be excellent to one another. Absolutely. Bill and Ted... Face the Music is currently out in cinemas, and I guess if you're in America, it's out on a Some v- Fandango v- would probably be the the streaming Fandango. Set. Yeah, it's like, Isn't their... it like a ticket thing. No, for them it's like a they like rent it. Oh, Americans. Well, yeah, the Americans. Uh, yeah, there's a yeah exactly cinemas here in Australia. Check it out. That boys. No, no worries. Bridging into what's new in cinemas mm. and streaming platforms, Jake. Well, I'll take a skip on Netflix because. Zeke, we keep doing this. Yes. <laughs> we keep forgetting to pick a film for next week. <laughs> now, there's a Netflix... How do we do this? We keep forgetting, man. I don't know. We just we get distracted. Now, there is a film that's coming to Netflix this week. I think you would be more than happy to do it as our film of the week. So. Okay. Let's just do uh, you, it. You're happy for me to just take yeah, the liberty? Yeah, you just yeah. take it. You take the liberty. All I'll right. Trust so, you. So, I'm going to give that a It's skip. been 87 weeks. You'd hope I'd just trust Good. you by now. <laughs> exactly. Um, well, also coming to Netflix this week is Bumblebee, if you're interested in that. Uh, one other film that we're going to get to in just a moment, guys. Uh, on stand this week, it's a big week. We've got Clueless, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Terminator 2, The Twilight Saga, The Host, which I'm hoping is the Bon Joon-ho film, The Host, which is great, and the first three Rambo films. Sounds interesting. Coming to Disney Plus this week is the Tom Hanks film Big, as well as Spies in Disguise, which stars Tom Holland and Will Smith. You made, a, you made a facial expression at Big. Yeah. Which have, is like, hmm. have you seen it? I have not. I haven't either. But I know he dances on a piano. <laughs> that's a thing. <laughs> if you're looking for a classic to watch in the next week, Luna are hosting a double screening next Monday, so September the 21st, I believe, of Easy Rider and Midnight Cowboy. Was that... Did you say Midnight Cowboy at the start of the show? Was it the one you guessed? No. No. You said Midnight Rider? What was it? Midnight Run. Midnight Run, there you go. Close enough. Midnight Cowboy. Same movie, right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and new to cinemas this week. This is actually a big week as well. So strap in, Zeke. Strapped hold, in. Hold on to your butts. Hold on to the butt. An American Pickle, which sees Seth Rogen play an immigrant worker as a, at a pickle factory who was accidentally preserved for 100 years and wakes up in modern-day Brooklyn. This is one I've seen do the rounds, but I guess it's coming to cinemas now? It seems okay. Seth Rogen looks really dirty in this film. I can imagine if he was in the 1900s. Yeah, yeah he's a pickle man or something. Uh, this is one I know you're very excited for, Zeke. Uh, the Translators, which sees a group of people combined into a bunker to work on the worldwide translations of an eagerly anticipated final book in a trilogy, uh, only to have the first few pages leaked, and it becomes a bit of a mystery of a who done it, who leaked the pages, mm. and... We saw the trailer for this before Tenet. Looks pretty cool. It looks cool. Looks yeah. really cool. Yeah. So I think that's out in the next week. Uh, let's see. Also coming out, uh, the Broken Hearts Gallery, which sees a New York art gallery assistant 
create an expedition of souvenirs from past relationships in the wake of being dumped by a boyfriend. And finally, an animated film called Astro Kid, which sees young William separated from his parents while traveling space and must learn to survive on a strange planet alongside Buck, a survival robot. Sounds like fun. That does sound like fun. Sounds like a little bit of fun. So, yeah, this new film coming to Netflix. You saw the trailer for this a few weeks back, and you seem pretty keen. Okay. The name of this film, and I guess we're doing it next week on the podcast. Yes. We'll be next one to each other. But, Jake, what are we watching? <laughs> next week, watching The Devil All the Time. Happy birthday, Happy Arvin. birthday, honey. Happy birthday to you. Well, this was your daddy's. Brought back from the war. It's time to pass it on. The devil all the time sees a young man devoted to protecting his loved ones in a town full of corruption and sinister characters. And Zeke, this is a big-ass cast. Got Tom Holland, Robert Patterson, Bill Skarsgård, Sebastian Stan, Jason Clarke, and we mentioned earlier in the show, Eliza Scanlon. So she's really getting a career, this, this young little a, girl. Yeah, it's going to be a spicy film. Yeah, so um, I just sort of dropped this on you. Does it sound, sound all right? Yeah, yeah, that sounds uh, it's pretty cool. So that's coming later this week to Netflix. Yeah, I think it's this week on Netflix. Very excited so, to watch uh, that. There you go. We're gonna have a fun time with so that. So it's one. it's the devil inside. Uh, you? Devil all the the devil all the time. The devil all the time. That almost doesn't sound grammatically correct. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> sounds a little off to me. Yeah, no, um, obviously I, with I the news with Robert Pattinson's Batman trailer came out a couple of weeks ago. That's true. A lot yeah. of hype. Um, obviously Holland's been defined by Spider-Man for the last mm. five, six years. So, oh my, four years, five years? Yeah. 2016, so, yeah, Civil War. Okay. So this would, this would be a pretty in, interesting, uh, look in. You know, he's been Spider-Man longer than, uh, than Andrew Garfield was Spider-Man. Really? Yeah. Because Andrew Garfield was only Spider-Man for like, I guess, two years, technically. Wow. There you go. Fascinating. Well, until then... <laughs> Enough of Spider-Man. <laughs> no, honestly, it's just be interesting to see these two. Um, obviously, Patton's done plenty in, in has built his reputation yeah. from the ground up in the last decade. So it'd be great to see another film with him in it. Um, very exciting. But for Holland especially, this would be nice to see him more bridging into more adult roles. Yeah, hopefully. I'm trying to... He hasn't, I haven't seen him in anything like super serious. Uh, Lost City of Z, but that was pre-Spider-Man. I haven't seen Lost City of Z. It's good. Charlie Hunnam, him and Patterson. Oh, so it's a reunion. Yeah. This is, uh, <laughs> I really like it. It used to be on Netflix. I don't think it is anymore, unfortunately. But I, if it was still on there, I would actually, if you could sneak that this week. Lost City of Z? Yeah. Okay. I'll see if I can check it out. No worries. Time. But until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Side Show podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. And we'll catch you next week with The Devil All The Time.